Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. Make sure you head over to our website, which is boft.org slash podcast. And on that site, you can purchase one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. Make sure to pick up one before this stock runs out and uh, sign up for our newsletter. This week, we are welcoming our coworker Lyle as a special guest to talk about religion and its role in the Civil War. Lyle, so. why don't you tell us about your background first? Oh, okay. Uh, my background, um, I had been a pastor for about 48 years. I actually started out seven years as a youth pastor and then the last 41 years as a senior pastor, lead pastor. I've had churches with staffs, whatever, but the last uh, 20 years or so, I was a solo pastor, which I enjoyed and, and really appreciated. Um, but I started coming to um, Carnton uh, at, uh, in the late 90s as a tourist. And uh, I'd always been intrigued ever since I found out that there was a print in the family parlor about Noah's sacrifice. And having knowing a little bit about the way that people justified um, discrimination, prejudice, knowing that they used the story of Noah's sacrifice uh, and Noah in uh, Genesis chapter 9 about condemning uh, or cursing his son Ham, and they arbitrarily made him the father of all the African nations, although there are some uh, evidences that his, his tribes actually spread to the Middle East and other places. Uh, but that always intrigued me about the spiritual justification that the that the South tried to make as far as justifying their position on slavery. And so that print stood out to you because yes. this family owned slaves, and that seems to fit that yes. justification mentality. Yeah, and and as I've learned more, and this is the, the intriguing things, as I've learned more, I've come to appreciate the fact that the McGavicks didn't start this. Um, uh, our forefathers inherited this uh, from the English uh, from when the, when the colonies were settled uh, and the Revolutionary War, whatever. They, they just kind of inherited this. Uh, seriously, and I realize that this is open to debate, and I realize I'm giving you my opinion. And uh, as I've said, in, uh, as I share this, I kind of give a disclaimer that I realize that none of the people even, even here at the, on the staff of the Battle of Franklin Trust uh, would necessarily totally agree with this. But th- I do believe it's a justifiable perspective that um, the South basically used those examples as an excuse to keep perpetuating the slave mentality. But when we go through the numbers, and as we go through the numbers on a daily basis through our tours, uh, 4 million slaves in 1860, uh, 3.9 million are in the South, Uh, 45% the demographics, 45% slave, 55% white uh, in the South. Um, they had to come up with something, and it seems to me uh, a logical explanation is is that they sometimes they had to formulate a, some type of a defense. And the sad part is is that I believe the South used religion more as a uh, uh, as a crutch, if you will, more than the North did. Uh, now I have the highest respect for Abraham Lincoln, and I truly believe he was a man of his times. And I greatly appreciate the fact that he was non-denominational, that he did not identify with any denomination. But I do believe that he was a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I would make that distinction today, and I don't want to get overly political and we're not here to preach a sermon, but uh, there are some today that are cultural Christians. There are some today that are committed. 
And uh, I am coming at it more from the committed standpoint. Uh, I, I have a document that has over a dozen uh, quotations of, of President Lincoln that he made that uh, alluded to the scriptures and different things like that. He used it more than anybody else. But he never used it as an excuse. He always used it as uh, from a position of, of this is what, this is how we should treat people. This is how we should obey. Can you give us an example of that? Well, I can read one uh, statement if I could. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he says, uh, it says that it's a handbill replying to the charges of infidelity on January, uh, July 31st, 1846. So this is early on. He says that I am not a member of any Christian church is true, but I have never denied the truth of the scriptures and I have never spoken with uh, intentional disrespect of religion in general or of any denomination of Christians in particular. Now, that's just kind of a foundation to me if what he says goes on. We know that he made the House Divided speech before the Civil War, um, and, he, and he makes a lot of other uh, uh, allusions to the scriptures. Um, but he, to me, uh, exonerates, uh, excuse me, exonerate, exemplifies what, um, what a true follower of Jesus Christ should really be. So I want to go back to something you said um, a few minutes ago where you said the McGavicks had inherited something. Were you referring to they had inherited the institution of slavery or that they had inherited the biblical defense of the institution of slavery? I think both. Uh, and the reason is, is if you've done, so, uh, done some reading, uh, there was a Presbyterian minister by the name of uh, Robert Louis Dabney, who eventually became a chaplain in the Civil War. And he wrote probably one of the first uh, doctrinal defenses of slavery for the South. Uh, since that time, I have to admit, I really appreciated our curator, uh, Joanna Stevens, gave me a copy of a book that came off of um, John McGavick's bookshelf uh, entitled uh, Slavery and Liberty uh, by um, uh, Bledsoe. And uh, he started out as an Episcopalian, he ends up as a Methodist, and I don't want to get into your denominational thing. But it's interesting that these men, as they promoted it, you have to realize that people were limited back then to what... Um, politicians, preachers, and publishers. Now, I alliterate it because that's the way I think sometimes, but those, that's what people were listening to. They were listening to politicians, they were looking, listening to their pastors, and they were listening to the newspapers, the publications. And so the church was a very integral part. Now, if they did not have that intimate personal relationship, a lot of times, and some of them were illiterate, now certainly the McGavicks were not, but they had to uh, realize that that's what they were getting in their preaching. We know the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Methodists all split in the late, uh, in the mid-1840s. They've split from north to south. Uh, the Episcopalians, I don't want to go there, but they didn't split, but they just kind of accommodated wherever they were. Um, so when we think about what... Um, the McGavicks were uh, subject to on a weekly basis. They were members of the Presbyterian Church, uh, as the Carters were. They would have heard this litany of, of, of theological dogma that would have been pro-slavery. So I think it was both. I think they inherited the slaves, and yet at the same time, I think they inherited the culture of slavery as well. And later on, as I read this book by Bledsoe, um, Albert Tyler Bledsoe, it was very interesting to realize that after the Civil War, he is also called the architect of the lost cause. And that's how they tried to, I don't want to say romanticize the Southern culture, but justify the Southern culture that involved slavery. Uh, from the South, from the Southern perspective, they believed that slavery was, um, they believed that slavery was a gift of God and, and that it entitled the, the white man. 
Um, Bledsoe makes some very, to me, incriminating statements in his book. Uh, he makes a statement that uh, the African native was unqualified to live in civil society. Uh, and of course, he and uh, um, Jefferson Davis tried to promote the fact that it was the greatest blessing for the Africans to come to America to be Christianized. Now, the problem with that is, is that Bledsoe and everybody else, they absolve themselves of any of the procurement or the process of bringing African slaves to America. They absolve themselves of the kidnappers. They absolve themselves of the slave traders of the, of, uh, of the ships. Uh, I just came across this article recently from a magazine that I get called World. It's, it's dated October 12, 2019. And it shows a picture uh, in Niger, Africa. There is a, there's a museum. There's a slavery museum. And they have a cutout of a slave ship. And it shows slaves sleeping head to foot, shackled, there's only about maybe two feet at the most between the layers. There's no sanitation. There's no hygiene. Uh, and that's the way they brought them to America. And it, it lasted between, what, three months? Uh, from three weeks, I think the shortest trip I, I read about was three weeks. The longest was six months. Uh, but just the inhumanity of, of the process. Um, this is why, uh, as we're contemplating, and I'm not sure how far this is going to go, um, maybe in the spring uh, coming up with what we're, what I would like to call an amazing grace tour using the testimony of uh, John Newton, who wrote the famous, uh, uh, song. John Newton was a slave trader. Uh, he was the captain of a slave ship. Now he had been born and raised in a Christian home. His mother taught him the Bible, whatever. But, uh, when he became, uh, his mother died when he was seven. His father took him out to sea when he was 11 years old and he became a salty sailor, if you will. He ended up in, he was actually imprisoned in Africa for a while for something that he had done, but eventually he became captain of a slave ship. And the story goes that on one of the missions or one of the missions that they had, they were sailing out. They had a, they had a, a load of, of slaves and they, they encountered a horrendous storm. And John Newton uh, feared for his own life and the life of the whole ship. And as a result, he cried out to God, the God that he remembered when he was a child and he cried out for God's mercy. And uh, within years, it wasn't immediately, but within years, he quit the slave trade. He became an Anglican minister. Uh, he did. Uh, he testified before the House of Commons, a committee before the House of Commons for uh, William Wilberforce in the abolition of slavery in England, because he could tell them what the process of the sla of slavery was all about. That's why those who try to justify the Southern slavery with the biblical admonitions in both the Old and the New Testament, I think they go way out of line because the paradigms are totally different. Uh, in fact, I came across one academic paper recently that said that uh, if you, we look at scriptures objectively, uh, God was more concerned about the responsibility that the slaveholder had to the slave than really looking at the slave as an asset. And I think Southern slavery, we have to admit, they certainly looked at the slave as an asset, certainly not as a responsibility. What was their biblical defense of slavery? Yeah, can what would they have heard at church? Okay. Yeah, can you summarize okay. kind of what their thoughts okay. are? So that okay, back in uh, back in Leviticus, I'm not going to get overly uh, you know biblical, but <clears throat> back in Leviticus, they uh, <clears throat> basically the parameters of slavery was when when people were conquered, uh, they were allowed to put people in subjection. Uh, but most of the time in, in Jewish history, in our Judeo-Christian heritage, it was for the most part that they were working towards freedom eventually. Uh, this is one of the things that concerns me about, about, about Southern slavery as well, because the perpetuity, uh, in Southern slavery, the perpetuity was lifetime. 
Uh, and I'm not sure that that slavery in the Bible, in any place in the Bible, in Leviticus or any place, that it was supposed to be a lifetime thing. It certainly there was slaves, there were masters, there were responsibilities for slaves and masters. Uh, masters were supposed to take care of their slaves. They were supposed to provide for them. And that's why I think I think the whole issue of in the Civil War, Southern slavery, it is totally outside the paradigm of the biblical perspective. In the New Testament, they talk about Jesus. They use the they use the uh, the illustration of Paul in in, uh, in Philippians, saying that if you're born into slavery, accept it as it is, and do it do it for your master, not just because he's a he's a believer, but even if he's an unbeliever. And he even talks about taking taking um, stripes uh, if you do it uh, if you do it because you earned it. Uh, you know, you should just simply accept it. If you did not earn it, just realize that Jesus compensates for that. Now, that sounds like a support to a certain extent, but if you look at it in its in its whole body of truth, and this is why uh, what I think what really is distorted uh, by the South is they took some examples, and I'm not trying to deny them, but if you weigh them against the whole body of truth of the scripture of our Judeo-Christian heritage, it was totally outside the paradigm, and especially when it comes to the procurement of the slave as far as the slave traders and um, and the kidnappers in Africa and their transport to America. Uh, all the Southern people wanted to do is take responsibility after they got here, and then for whatever reason, Bledsoe and uh, uh, Jefferson Davis and some others uh, who want to pr promote uh, the lost cause, they want to try to build up the aspect that it was the, the, the African slave's opportunity to become Christian. In fact, Bledsoe goes, to far, uh, goes so far in his book to say that in the islands, in Jamaica, that he gives credits that slaveholders should be given more credit for bringing more slaves to Christianity than missionaries. Now, to me, that borders on blasphemy, but that's a personal issue. Uh, <laughs> you, you've mentioned the lost cause a couple of times, but I do feel like it would be important for our listeners to talk about how, talk about exactly what that means. Because, of course, after the war, there is this move to separate the causes of the war from what actually happened during the war. Right. And one of those, one aspect of the lost cause mentality is that in order to justify the war, you also have to say, well, slavery wasn't really that bad anyway. And as part of it, look, all these slaves became Christians. <laughs> so it couldn't have been that big of an issue that people were actually upset about it. Uh, but that provokes the question, how were they treated? In other words, you're saying the lost cause does present the romanticized, the nice um, cotillion atmosphere of the Southern mentality, whatever. But again, when you when you read a book like Bledsoe's, when he talks about African slaves not being qualified to live in a civil society, that they needed to be whipped, that they needed to be disciplined, uh, to me, it goes totally 100% contrary to what my Christian beliefs teach me. So um, I think it's what you want to believe. Uh, do you want to believe that that the tree, that the slaves were treated uh, amicably and fairly and and whatever, or do we want to say that there was a lot of abuses? You know, it's how you want to look at it. In other words, do you want to look through the Southern culture through rose prim glasses, or do you want to look through it reality? Uh, I think reality uh, teaches us there was a lot of suffering. Uh, I do not believe the average Southern slaveholder was beneficent to his slaves. I believe it was, uh, I believe it was uh, slavery at its worst. Uh, and so it's a lot of, and this is why we probably have differing of opinions and perspectives of people that come from different parts of the country. And how did people, this might be more of a philosophical question, but how did preachers or how did the religious system get to the point where you could use a scripture to justify the thing that you wanted to, to 
justify, mm-hmm. but to completely ignore all the other teachings that's, that would seem to contradict how they would be treating the enslaved individuals. Okay. I don't have an easy answer for that because I think the same thing goes on today. Uh, I think there are those out there that are preaching a gospel or preaching a spirituality that is not genuinely biblical. Um, again, it's what, what do you want to believe? I, I believe that what um, there were voices, and I believe there were dissenting voices in the South uh, that knew that slavery was wrong. Uh, I believe Lincoln is the one who made the statement that if slavery isn't wrong, nothing is wrong, or if slavery isn't sin, nothing is sin. Uh, so I, I believe that there were voices, but I, uh, undoubtedly there was a group of people. Uh, now, having said that, it's kind of interesting now, um, because now within the last 25 years, all the major denominations, the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians that split in, uh, in the, in the 1840s, they have all made major statements of reconciliation and apology to the black community, to the African Americans, to the slaves about their tolerance and their, and their, uh, promoting slavery. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. I came across an article recently that in 2016, the Southern Baptist, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but they made a, re- passed a resolution, uh, really, uh, trying to downplay and encourage their churches and institutions to uh, get rid of the Confederate battle flag. There were still some institutions that would still carry it because we know, in other words, we have the struggle when we answer questions here at Battle of Tran- uh, you know, Franklin Trust. What does the Confederate battle flag mean? Is it a heritage? Is it a family heritage? Or is it a symbol? Uh, some of us look at it as a symbol of slavery, which I think the, prepon- the preponderance of the evidence goes that way, that it's that's a, it's a symbol of slavery. I can't deny that people who've grown up with it feel like it, it's part of their heritage. But I appreciate the fact that in 2016, the Southern Baptists pay, pa- passed a major uh, resolution at their national convention putting away the Confederate battle flag from any of their institutions. That is interesting. So I, I think that they have tried. So I, I think what's happened is we've, we've, we've come back full circle where they did get away from them. And now these now these these groups are coming back again, but having said that, we all know that there is still an element that still wants to promote the lost cause. What was the cause of the split in the 1840s? <clears throat> well, it was slavery uh, in, in all in all the major denominations. It was slavery. Um, some of the names um, that we have, I think, J. O. Andrews was a Methodist. Uh, Richard Furman was a Baptist. Furman University in South Carolina. Uh, he was uh, he was one of the Baptist proponents uh, of that. Um, Presbyterians, Dabney was a Presbyterian. Uh, like I said, uh, Bledsoe started out as an Episcopalian, ends up as a Methodist. What's interesting about Bledsoe as well, he also practiced law. And he practiced law in Illinois. He actually practiced law in the same courthouse that Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas practiced law. So it's interesting the overlap that some of these guys had. And uh, Bledsoe especially, I'm kind of hung up on Bledsoe because of the book that I was able to read. He's looked on as one of the leading, excuse me, intellectuals of the South. And uh, it's disturbing. To me, it's disturbing to think that he would have that much influence. But you have to realize that we have people today uh, who are the people who are the major influencers today. There are, there are voices. Uh, and some are worth listening to and some are not worth listening to. So I think when we, when we talk about um, the whole Southern mentality, I think it was a Southern mentality. It was a cultural thing. How many people bought into it? How many people knew better and how many people didn't? Now, that's a question because that to me is the question that how they would ha- have to answer now in a spiritual perspective, who is going to have to answer to God? Now, if they did it innocently, 
that's a sin of omission. They, in other words, they didn't intend to do it. It just happened and, and it happened. If it's a sin of commission that they deliberately knew better and they still promoted it, then that is a grievous fault. Now, can God forgive? Yes, he can. He can forgive murderers and and whatever. But um, to me, that's I, I hold people in kind of a hierarchy of accountability. Some people were having had a higher level of accountability. I think the preachers had a higher level of accountability. Now, some of the preachers might have been just preaching what they heard their their seniors preaching. And so they might not have been quite as accountable. But certainly Dabney, Bledsoe, um, all these guys that I mentioned, Andrews, uh, whatever, they knew better. Uh, and so I think I, you know, to say Christian, non-Christian, uh, that's very difficult for us because we're not supposed to judge. Uh, but certainly as far as my understanding of Scripture, it, it was not it was not harmonious with Scripture. Okay, so the, <clears throat> the cause of the split in the denominations yes, was over slavery, slavery but why <sighs> then? Why, why in the 1840s? Well, the only thing I can put to that is that knowing a little bit about the history, South Carolina had been rattling their, their, their saber from about for 20 years before the Civil War from the 40s to the 50s. Everything seems to happen in you know, South Carolina. So South Carolina seems to be the hotbed. Uh, so I would say that, and it seems like most of these guys had some connection with South Carolina. So what the dynamics was there, I, I don't know for sure. It's, it's about in the time <clears throat> when politics in the United States is getting to the point in time where the, the United States is really starting to split over the issue of slavery. So it's very, yes. well, that's but, when the, that's when the churches begin to split over that same yes. issue as well. And the founding generation is all gone by that point mm -hmm. in time. And, yes. and the new generation and the new, yeah. new generation yeah. have taken over and yeah. you've got your John C. Calhoun saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and here again, they, to me, they hid behind the pulpit to promote slavery uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a positive message. They hid behind the pulpit to prove it. That's why it concerns me, as I've I've learned about this now, that the South used hid behind religion more than the North did. Uh, Lincoln never tried to hide behind religion. He tried to use it to promote the truth. This is what these are the words of Jesus. This is the words of the Scripture. Uh, he didn't try to hide behind the church. That's why it was good that he was non-denominational. But um, you know, everybody everybody has to make their own choice, and I think that's the problem. That people in the South, if they were illiterate, whatever, if they were just going to church, listening to their pastor, did they want to? I mean, I think it had to be very difficult in the South to be a dissident, uh, to be to go against uh, to go against the Confederacy. And we know that there was a resistance down South, that everybody did not follow the Confederacy. Let's go back to the book that John McGavick owned, Liberty okay. and Slavery. Yep. And of course, just because somebody owns a book doesn't mean no. they believe everything no. that's in the book. But it was one that he owned and that he kept and passed on to the next generation. Yes. But what could you sum up the big arguments that were made in that book? Well, uh, as I said, that the African-American was a heathen, uh, was not qualified to live in civilized society, which I think we have all found now to be totally uh, ridiculous because we know that people will adapt to their to their atmospheres. It does has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with uh, with abilities. Uh, but that was one of his basic promotes. Uh, was the book just using the Bible to justify this, no. or were they using pseudoscience as well? No, basic, basically, I think pseudoscience and pseudo philosophy. Uh, I, I think I think Bledsoe was trying to be a philosopher at the same time, and like I said, he was one of the leading intellectuals of the South at that time. Uh, so I think he was giving what they, they basically, and you have to realize now the hermeneutics. Now hermeneutics is the way you interpret the Bible. Um, and, and here again, how you define, uh, Noah's, uh, curse of ham, uh, was it perpetual or was it just simply an episodic? In other words, was it just simply an episode? 
I believe it was episodic. I believe it was just simply an episode that he said, because you, d you did this, and I'm not going to go back to the ramifications of how it happened and why he did curse him. Uh, but I do not believe it was perpetual. Uh, and then, but that's why, and that's why what's unique too, and we all know this because we talk about this a lot here at the Battle of Franklin Trust, is that this slavery was so different than anything else because it was strictly based on race. No other times in the Bible, it was not based on race. It was race based on basically uh, one nation capturing another nation, whatever different, it was inter, inter, uh, interracial, if you will, uh, inter-ethnicities. Uh, it was just whoever had the power at the time. This was based purely on race. And they, not that they denied, and it's kind of interesting because Bledsoe does, it, 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 to me, he actually speaks out of two, two sides of his mouth. Because in one breath, he says, the African is not qualified to live in civilized society. And in another breath, he says, they are living souls. They are, uh, they are uh, redeemable by God. Uh, and, and so it, it, to me, that's kind of a contradiction because in other words, he's saying, yes, they have God's worth in them intrinsically, but yet they're not, they're not qualified. They don't meet up to our standards so we cannot let, allow them to live in our culture and our society, uh, which to me is kind of schizophrenic, if you ask me. So, but that's, that's where the, that's where he went. And that's why, uh, it was one of the leading books. I, I am told it's one of the leading books on the promoting Southern slavery. Uh, and that's why, as I read it, I just read contradictions in it all the time. But that's what was happening. And but again, it's not so much what I what I don't see today because I see contradictions today too. And people are just go head over heels. They, they follow a leader; they don't follow the message necessarily. Okay, so I I kind of have a question as well. So okay. what, one of the interesting things about the Civil War is that it was. You know the classic phrase is brother against brother, but mm -hmm. one of the, one of the things is that the vast majority of the participants in the war yes. held the same religion. Yes, now that's not universally true. Yes. There there were people who were exceptions to that, but the vast majority of people, north and south, mm -hmm. claimed to be Christian, but was and uh, from an outsider perspective, it's all except for this one issue. Mm -hmm. But were there other issues that divided the north and the south theologically? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, in fact, I, I have another quote here from Lincoln uh, because he makes a statement. He says, because um, I, I make the statement in, a, in a, something that I've written, intelligent, well-meaning Christians were on both sides. Whose side was God on? Was God on? When Abraham Lincoln was asked, asked that question, his response was, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And then he goes on to say, that they all prayed to the, they, they, you know, both sides prayed to the same God, they read the same Bible and whatever. So he basically opens up the question as well, and he doesn't really answer it. How, why, why did we come up with different answers? Why did the South come up with a di different answer? Because it was the same Bible, it was the same God. So then you have to look at, at your motivation. Uh, what is your internal motivation? Is it, is it truly to be a Christ follower? Or is it just simply to use religion for however we want to manipulate it, whatever? And again, I would go by, go to say that today, even in our contemporary culture, you'll find people the same way. Uh, there are Christ followers, which I, I like that term. 
And there are, I'm not so much into Christian uh, anymore, and I don't mean to sound like I'm anti-Christian. You heard just, it here, folks. Lyle is not a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Pastor well, for almost true. 50 that's years. True. That's true. That's true. I'm a Christ follower. And I can tell you the story behind that terminology too, but that's, it doesn't work in here. So, um, so yeah, so, so people had to constantly make choices. And, but today people use religion as an excuse. I mean, somebody has said you can find a book in the, you can find a verse in the Bible to prove anything you want to prove. And that's true. But here again, if you take the whole body of truth, where does it lead you? And, and that's where uh, I, I believe that people that wanted, and that's why I hold a guy like Bledsoe, especially writing this book, being in the position that he was in. I don't know how he ended up. I don't know how he resolved, his life was resolved. Um, I, I certainly can't question his eternal destiny because that's up to God. But I certainly would question his, his authority and the influence that he had and the influence that he had over other people. And that's what we have to be very cautious of today is not only uh, the freedom that we have to say what we want to say, which is an inalienable right, but it's what, what are we influencing the next generation and, uh, and what we are saying, how does it influence other people? I think you made an interesting point earlier when you said that, of course, not everybody who held these beliefs was doing, show, was doing so purposefully with malicious intent. Many of them were just believing what they were told yes. uh, from a position of authority to believe. Mm-hmm. And similarly, not everybody in the North was an abolitionist. Nobody, not everybody took no. it to that level, no. but the abolitionist mentality, how did they use scripture to justify their beliefs? Well, Frederick Douglass, I read an article by Frederick Douglass and he just, and it was kind of a backhanded uh, slap at the Southern Christians because he said, if, if slavery is Christian, then he didn't want any part of it. Basically, it's kind of a paraphrase. Um, but uh, he just simply said that it was not any part of the Christianity that he knew. So, um, like I say, both sides used it for what it was worth. Um, there is a su- significant thing that I think that also has to be considered when we think about the process of how the slaves got here. Because I think this, to me, that's a very differentiating consideration when we think about slavery in the Bible and and, and, and American slavery and especially African slavery, uh, to me the procurement and the process uh, totally separates it from from biblical biblical slavery. But I came across this article by a man by the name of Stephen Mintz, and he's writing for the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History, and it's entitled "Historical Context: Facts About the Slave Trade, uh, About the Slave Trade and Slavery." He makes the statement over the period of the Atlantic slave trade from the approximately 1526, uh, from approximately 1526 to 1867, some 12 million, 12.5 million slaves have been shipped from Africa and 10.7 million had arrived in the Americas. Now that means the islands and everything. The Atlantic slave trade was likely the most costly in human life of all long distance global migrations. Now, to me, if there's anything that puts this as biblically immoral, that statement right there, that there is no other geographical migration that killed more people than the African slave trade. I think we estimate, what, 12% or something like that that died on the, on the way over. I think that's the figure that I heard. So when it comes down to, to, to true spirituality, um, so I, believe, I believe that some of these people uh, at the end of the war, they did repent. I believe they did come to their understanding. I, I wrestle with it. Why does Fountain Branch Carter give Jack and California 200 acres of land? Uh, he had seven children. Uh, they could have inherited that land. Why did he give it to two slaves? Maybe it shows that, you know, was it he trying to do something? Was it too late 
you know, too late or whatever, but probably not because at least they were able to enjoy it. People ask me from time to time on tours, what was the relationship when we get this from time to time? What was the Carter's relationship with their slaves? What was the McGavis relationship with their slaves? I would like to think that maybe Mariah and Frankie indicate that maybe the maybe the McGavicks were were reasonable and sensible in their treatment of their slaves. But here again, you have to take the whole body of truth. And and certainly in the South, it was not a benevolent atmosphere for slaves in the South. It was it was punitive, it was torture, it was just simply to to be moved around and be used as as whatever would profit the slaveholder. Well and I mean even here you bring up an example like Mariah, but there's also, you know, in the museum we have the newspaper article that John took out offering a reward for an enslaved man named Dick who escaped. Yep. And so you have somebody who risks his life to leave while he was a slave. And yep. then a Wait. woman who's a former slave and chooses yeah. to return as a freed. That phrase, the institution of slavery, uh, that to me is a, I don't know, it's not, it's not a misnomer because it was an institution. But what does that say about our American culture? And of course, the ultimate, to me, the ultimate uh, assessment of the Civil War was what Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural address it, it, paraphrasing it, he believed that that slavery was a judgment. Uh, excuse me, that God, that the Civil War was God's judgment on America for slavery, and uh, because of our, our of our treatment uh, of the African American, and uh, and I think that was very perceptive, and I think it's rather interesting. Lincoln can get away with it. You and I can't get away with something like that. It sounds very inflammatory. But uh, for having Abraham Lincoln, everybody, you know, uh, Barack Obama was sworn in on Lincoln's Bible. Donald Trump was sworn in on Lincoln's Bible. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln is kind of off limits to anybody as far as he's kind of sacrosanct. But when you think about it, um, when he made that statement that the Civil War was God's judgment on America for the way that we treated slavery. And he even, he even backed off. Uh, he wasn't trying to come across sanctimonious and try to be self-righteous for the North. In other words, his message was as, cru was as hard to, uh, on us too because it goes beyond slavery. You intimated that, Brad, a little bit a while ago. Uh, because it goes beyond slavery. It goes to discrimination. It goes to prejudice. Uh, slavery was just one aspect of it. And yes, slavery was horrendous and slavery had to end. But we're still fighting the battles of discrimination and prejudice, uh, you know, in our contemporary culture. So, so really the battle's not over. And sometimes religion is used for that as well. And I find that there's a lot of closet prejudiced people, uh, a lot of closet uh, discriminating people, Outwardly, they don't say anything, but inwardly, and we've got these little collective areas in our country that are just kind of off limits to certain people. And that's why I believe our message here at the Battle of Franklin Trust is so relevant. Uh, that's one thing. When I started working here, it was basically a um, historical thing because I, I enjoy history. Uh, but anymore, I see it. Uh, we, we do have a message to share with people. Thank you so much to Lyle for participating in the podcast this week. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to have the 155th anniversary of the Battle of Franklin on November 30th. So we'd like to invite all of our listeners to come out and help us with honoring the men who fought here and the men who died here 155 years ago. And it's the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So if your families are in town, it's the perfect thing to bring them to. Yeah, if you want to get out of the house, you're a little bit annoyed with them. No, come here. We're doing things a little bit differently this year. We're going to be having living historians and reenactors throughout the day. Then at both of the homes, Carter House and Carton, we're going to have 10,000 luminaries inside the house to represent the 10,000 casualties. For more information on that, head to boft.org events. And as always, follow us on Instagram 
at 10 and 20 podcast, T E N N I N 20 podcast, or send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And if you come to the anniversary, to the illumination, both Brad and I will for sure be there. So you may be able to meet and chat with either of us or both of us. Thank you so much for listening.